Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listing platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. On today's episode of Autism Stories, Christine Sunderberg joins me to discuss being a criminal defense attorney, social justice within the context of the autistic experience, and support groups for autistics. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Christine, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I've heard a number of your podcast episodes. Um, I know you've had some really great people on, so thanks so much for uh, letting me join. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. And just to start out, learning a little bit about you, where does your story in the autistic community begin? Sure. I mean, I think like like so many of us, it started from birth for sure. <laughs> Not too many of us were were in on the on the news, but um, you know, definitely from a child, I I had and displayed a number of autistic traits. You know, I was hyperlexic. I was hyperverbal. I I wouldn't be touched. I wouldn't be hugged. You know, there's like an infamous family story of some holiday where I let mom put in one side of the pigtail tail, but not the other side and spent the rest of the day sort of running around avoiding that. So, you know, I, I sort of had the profile from a young age, but really wasn't, wasn't caught, you know, for whatever reason, maybe in part because I've always done fairly well in school. My particular autistic profile it, that's just sort of the way it manifests. I've been sort of good at school without trying too much. And I think that sort of let me slip through a lot of cracks. But, you know, I, I sort of later in life in my late 20s was when I started to become aware of autism and sort of the, the traits that really, for me, resonated with me a lot. And that's really sort of when I started to, to learn things that were helpful to me. I think what's interesting for those of us that learn later in life is we sort of go through these cycles where you know, there's definitely some anger at first, like how did nobody figure this out? <laughs> you know, there's definitely phases of grief where you realize like things aren't what you thought or maybe won't be what you thought. And then there's also, you know, really good phases of, you know, acceptance and sometimes even pride if you're lucky enough in the good days. And I do feel really, really grateful because once I knew, I, you know, I was able to learn so much from our community. You know, I think that's probably the, the best thing that happened for me is sort of learning from everybody else, how they cope with things, how they deal with things has been so helpful. I think I've gotten a sense of balance from that that I couldn't find before. And I'm really grateful for that. You know, I think one thing important to acknowledge is that I think lots of late diagnosed autistic people continue to go through those cycles and other cycles and different forms of the cycles. And it's hard because autistic adults receive very little targeted support. And as we're sort of going through these things, we don't always have people to help us through it. So for me, it was sort of later in life. I think that's a really common story for women like myself, but I'm grateful to have the information I have now. And it's a community that really changed my life in a lot of ways. Now, I've followed you on Instagram for a while now. And something that intrigued me at the top of your Instagram profile is that you you wrote um, in my own time and space i'm curious what does that kind of specifically mean to you 
Sure. Well, I want to make clear first, I am not, I don't speak the language that this word initially comes from. Apparently it's a Maori word, which is a native language in New Zealand of the original Polynesian inhabitants there. I just sort of, as I began my autism journey, like so many people, I devoured books and, and things on the internet and articles. And that's one of the things I, I came across that for me, I guess it just really resonated with me and it stuck with me. The idea is that their word for autism there translates literally to in my own time and space. And for me specifically, I guess I tend to think of it as like a good mantra in the good times and in the bad times. I think it really can apply to everyone too. You know, there's definitely, I think, days for everybody where you sometimes feel like, you know, compared to other people, you're not doing maybe what they're doing. You're not doing things on the same timeline. And I think that's particularly true for autistic folks. A lot of the way we live and move through the world looks differently than other people. And so I think for me, you know, on the good days, it's something to be proud of. I'm a, a truly unique individual that does move through the world in my own time and space. And it's a good thing about me. And then there's, you know, the bad days too, where it's a, a good reminder, you know, it might feel lonely here, but it's truly at the end of the day, what makes me, you know, who I am. I think it's something really sort of beautiful about honoring and valuing each individual person's own time and space. It's sort of a way of seeing and respecting who other people are. And and talking about who you are, you're, you're an attorney and you've just uh, recently, I believe, celebrated uh, your fifth anniversary of your law firm, uh, Partners in Justice. What a great name for a law firm. <laughs> uh, Thank you. And uh, you work with uh, clients to help them determine what justice looks like for, for them. So I'm, I'm curious, what are some ways you go about doing that with your clients? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'm a, a criminal defense and prisoner's rights attorney. That's what I do and that's what our law firm does. So the idea, you know, behind your partners in justice is sort of like, you know, we're here to be on your team and to, as best we can, try to get you what feels maybe close to justice for you. You know, I think for us, we represent people for very serious crimes, often people that have seriously traumatic histories, facing a number of systemic obstacles and difficulties. In our current legal system in general, specifically our, our so-called criminal justice system, just doesn't really provide people, I think, with the justice that they're looking for. You know, it's a system set up to punish. It's riddled with racism. There's extreme overpunishment. There's extreme sentencing. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world for a first world country. It's just these problems are sort of, they cover the whole system and really make a sense of unfairness for so many people. And for all this, you know, we, we aren't any safer. We can't, we can't even say we're safer as a country. So I think for the most part, people feel like they don't get what they want from our legal system. That's sort of a reality in America. And, you know, as a defense attorney, we have to represent people in that reality. We can't always get the ideal. We can't always get somebody no prison time or, you know, we can't always get them parole on the first time. You can't always do those things. But, you know, I think as a lawyer, I, I want to be of value and, I want to be of use to the people that I am serving. You know, I believe it's really important to be honest with them about what they can expect from our legal system, but also to work with them as much as we can to, you know, mitigate consequences on their lives, help them to look forward and be hopeful about the future, which is really hard after spending a long time in prison, after being dragged through the, the criminal punishment process. 
you know, help them to make realistic plans and to sort of understand the world that they're dealing with, especially folks that spend, you know, decades in prison. That's something that isn't being offered to them for the most part while they're in prison, but we release people to the community. They need support. They need help. They need to feel like there are people that are rooting for them. I think so much of it is trying to understand what people's goals are and if we can, trying to help them move in that direction during our time with them as attorneys. You know, we also, we come in and out, right? I'm not always in someone's life all the time. Usually I show up when there's something bad happening, you know, there's Mm -hmm. an emergency or we're really trying to solve a really tough problem. That's when lawyers get brought in. So we're not always there. We're not there all the time, but it feels to me like when I am there, I really want to be a force to push things in the right direction so that people feel like they're valued and they feel like someone cares about what happens to them. So for so many autistic people, so social justice is a really big part of our lives. And it seems like that's certainly um, important work that you do as an attorney. So therefore, I'm wondering how much of your own autistic experience intersects with the work that you do? Sure. I don't actually think I would even be a lawyer if not for being autistic. You know, it, it is my sense of justice is really like foundational to who I am. And I, I tend to see everything through that lens. But it's almost like it, it's 24 seven. There's no off switch. You know, it's almost I wish there were an off switch sometimes, you know. But for me, I think as an autistic person, I don't feel like I'll ever really be satisfied with the state of things until the injustices that I see feel like they're resolved. And I think that's a hard thing for so many autistic people. We have a really hard time accepting what's around us because it just is so clearly not not right. A lot of the time, you know, one of the autistic people that sort of stuck with me in this sort of area of thought is Greta Thunberg. You know, I don't know if you've seen the movie about, you know, when she takes her journey across the ocean in a boat and she goes to different governments and she's, you know, making speeches about climate change and advocating for these things. What I thought was so interesting about her, though, is she sort of views herself as like in this big pack of people that we call society, right? And she's the person in the group that sees the threat, sees the emergency, and she's trying to sound the alarm, right? And it's all these people that aren't always hearing her, but she views it as like who she is, that she's the person that can see it. Not everyone can see it and and she can see it. So she's going to say it out loud. You know, I think that's so common for a lot of autistic people. We sort of have this inherent compulsion to sound the alarm when we see things that maybe other people don't, or even when we see things that maybe just, we picked out a pattern, we perceive things in a way other people haven't. And so, you know, I think for me, I'm certainly not satisfied even with the things that I am doing that I think are helping. You know, I try to, like I said, help each individual client as best I can, but you know, I really think ideally I would have some kind of bigger impact than I have. You know, it's sort of a constant focus for me is how can I do that? It's sort of where my brain, I think, lives most of the time, unless I sort of deliberately steer it elsewhere is sort of how do we solve these problems? Because I just, as an autistic person, it really is, it's the glasses I'm wearing. It's it's everything I see and, and I, I can't help it but to see it that way and to worry about the harm it causes people. Now, from what I understand, uh, you represent clients in all stages of the criminal process, you know, regarding the sex offender offender registry board hearings and sexually dangerous persons trials, to name a a couple of the stages. So when, when you have a client that's autistic or neurodivergent, in what ways may that change how you go about representing that individual? 
I feel like there's maybe a little bit of two questions in there. I guess first I'll speak to the, you know, the sort of harsh and difficult crimes that I represent people in. You know, certainly that's a question that I get with some frequency about the crimes some of my clients have committed. How do you represent these people? Why do you represent these people? And, you know, for me, it's actually very simple. First of all, everybody is a person and everybody counts. And it comes down to the idea that we should never give up on any human. We should never leave someone completely on their own and with no hope. Everybody needs someone in their corner, especially when everybody has left their corner, right? And so oftentimes as a defense lawyer, I am very cognizant of the fact that I might be the only person left standing with this individual. And that is an important thing to be doing because nobody should be completely on their own when they're facing really anything, but especially something as serious as just having committed a really serious crime probably wasn't something they wanted to do, but their their lives for whatever reason led them to that place, trying to figure out how they can fix things now, trying to figure out how they're gonna work their way through this complicated and scary system. My goal is always to make this person's life better to the best of my you know, legal and compassionate abilities during my time representing them because I understand that when we do that for people, we actually make society safer. We make society safer when people who are having a hard time know that people are rooting for them, know that there are people that want things to go well, there are people that are willing to support them and trying to do and be better. So I just think that's such an important part of the criminal system that gets overlooked. We tend to say this person's done something bad, put them in prison, we don't want to sort of deal with them anymore. And I think that there's so much wrong with that approach. And so for me, I guess for me, I do find it easy to represent really anyone. I, I'm not willing to judge people based on what they've done. I'm not willing to say that a person is the worst thing that they've done because I wouldn't want someone to feel that way about me. I guess, you know, turning to the, the second part of your question, you know, certainly I represent lots of folks that are neurodivergent, sometimes autistic. And I guess for me, it's not necessarily that I say, oh, this person is autistic, I should definitely do this, or I should approach them like this. I think more important to me is that as an autistic person, I am very aware of the fact that I don't have any understanding of this person's brain or what they're experiencing until they help me to understand it, until I ask them questions and I earn their trust and I make it so that they feel comfortable sharing that with me. You know, it's important to approach people with the assumption that I don't know anything because I, and I, you know, I just think that having that understanding of different brain types, it helps me as a lawyer because what I'm trying to figure out is how can I best help this person? It's really not about me. I'm a tool to try to help this person. And if I'm not doing what I can to try to figure out what's going on for them, I'm not really doing them a service. I know what it's like to be an autistic person, but I work with lots of other d different types of neurodivergence, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar, lots of epilepsy, lots of things that I don't know what that experience is like. And it's on me as their lawyer to try to understand that because I don't have that experience. And, you know, as an autistic person, that's what I would want. You know, if someone were representing me, I would want them to try to understand where I'm coming from, to try to represent me and who I was as close as possible, as authentically as possible. And I guess I'm always aware of the importance of that and the responsibility of that. 
it's a big deal when someone asks you to represent them to the world, to a court, to a board of people that are going to make a huge decision about their lives. That's a big deal and it's a big responsibility. It's humbling in a lot of ways when someone will give you that trust and ask you to do that for them. And I think for me, I tend to think of it that way. It is my job to come in here and, and learn as best I can to help this person. And it might mean that I have to learn something new I've never learned before, but that's what I'm here for, if that's what it takes. Having this conversation with you makes me think about self-advocacy, you know, being a, a person in their 40s. You know, there's definitely certain things that are very difficult for me even to this day to advocate for myself. So I'm wondering, like, in these, you know, these situations about someone has to share a lot of these intimate details about their lives, maybe some things they might not be super proud of, things that they're being judged for. So how do you go about managing those communications? Yeah, well, like I said before, so much of it is about earning that person's trust. You know, it's really hard to share the worst parts of yourself or the worst parts of your life with other people. And I think most of us are actually not asked to do that in our daily lives for the most part. Myself, I can't think of very, you know, very many occasions where anyone's putting my feet to the fire and saying, answer for these 10 horrible things you might have done in your life or these mistakes you've made or things you've said or whatever. You know, geez, I really would not want that. And I think it's hard for anybody to have a new person coming into their life and especially they've spent, you know, maybe years in the prison system or even just in and out of jail or whatever, I seem like just somebody else from the system, right? And that's a completely fair assumption for them to make. For all they know, I am. They should make no assumption about me from the jump. And I agree with them about that. So, you know, I guess for me, especially when I'm working with someone that, you know, maybe has a neurodivergence I'm not familiar with or something that you know, maybe like a traumatic brain injury, something that affects their memory or makes it tougher for us to build that relationship. I really have to accept it's going to take some time here. It's going to take me maybe a few meetings of meeting with this person, talking with this person about things that maybe aren't relevant to the case I'm working on. It might not help me get them out of prison. It might not help me you know, to solve the problem that I am put in their life to solve legally. But I'll sort of say, okay, this is a problem this person really cares about. And as a lawyer, I kind of know what to do about it because I basically understand how the legal system works. And so sometimes there's things that I'll do in an effort to build their trust because I really want them to know that I'm on their team. I'm here to help you. I'm not someone that's here about myself. I'm here because I really want to try to figure this out with you. You know, I, I want to join the team. In a lot of ways, you're the coach. You've got to sort of get us, explain where you want things to go, but they're not going to do that unless they trust that you want to help them get there and that you're not someone else that's trying to step all over whatever they might, they might be dreaming of. And so I think it takes a lot for people to learn to trust me. And I just sort of try to show up to meetings with clients as my most authentic self. I try to, you know, share parts of myself with them, learn about them and be patient. If it takes someone three months to believe I'm on their team, I'll be here for three months. If it takes them six months, I'll, I'll be there for six months. And it's, it, again, it's something humbling. I think sometimes lawyers, we tend to have an ego, right? And it's good to remember that this person doesn't owe me anything. They do not need to trust me. In fact, I work for them. You know, I need to figure out how I can help them and how I can help them feel safe when they're talking to me. Now, 
we all know that legal representation can be um, incredibly expensive, but uh, through your firm, you provide um, affordable advocacy. So I imagine this isn't something you have to do. So why did you and your partner decide to provide clients your services based on their income? That was one of our goals when we started out as a law firm. Lawyers are very expensive, but I think both myself and my law partner, Reyna Ramirez, you know, we really wanted to try to make our services available to more than just wealthy people that can afford a lawyer. We wanted to have a process where we could offer people somewhat more individualized estimates that they can potentially afford wherever we can. This is a hard thing to do because, of course, we're trying to, to pay ourselves as well and keep our, our law firm open. You know, so one thing that we do is we have a free consultation with every client. And we do that really because we're trying to learn how we can most efficiently help people. I often get feedback from those conversations that I'm very honest, and that's absolutely true. I'm willing to tell someone when something is a waste of their money. I'm willing to try to work with someone to figure out, is there a way I can help them with parts of this case that will cost them less so that they get the help they need, even if it's not full representation. Maybe I can help them complete paperwork. Maybe I can just prepare them for what they're about to walk into so they don't make any big mistakes, whatever it might be. There are some contexts where I can do that as a lawyer, and it really can change the game for people. I think when I started out, I really did not want to be a lawyer that was here to just make money off of people. I want it to be how I make my living, but I'm not here to use the fact that I have privilege in the legal system, you know, to drain as much money out of a customer as I can. That that doesn't sound like fun to me, and it's not why I became a lawyer, and it's not why I opened a business. I wanted to feel like I was helping people, and of course, you know, when you have to charge people money, something gets taken from that good feeling always, right? And so we try, I think, to, to meet people where we can. It's not always perfect, but we try. Now, maybe this is an impossible question, but, you know, you deal with, like, some really intense and life, kind of life-changing situations. Like, how do you maybe not take this home with you or maybe take it home with you, you know, at least to the point where you're not likely to experience autistic burnout as a result? Oh, sure. I mean, I'm sure I'm susceptible to that, just like every other autistic <laughs> person, because in a lot of ways, I don't know that I do stop myself from taking it home. It is something that I'm always thinking about my clients. I'm often thinking about how I can do something bigger and better to, to try to help more. I would say that I'm one of those autistic people that has true crime as my special interest. And so I watch lots of crime documentaries. I listen to lots of crime podcasts. I, I probably should work on ways to spend to spend less time on it. But I guess for me, I do try to make time like every weekend I go to my parents' house. That's sort of like a safe place that I have every single Sunday that I, I go there. I don't work while I'm there. We watch shows that we like. We do a puzzle. We do something that's completely you know, not work. Oftentimes my cell phone is in my bag all day while I'm there. That's definitely something that makes a difference in my week. And I'm also a really big reader. I read as much as I can really find time for. And increasingly lately, I've been making myself take time for it because I do think it's one of those things that's regulating and grounding, literally, you know, picks me up and takes me from one world and puts me into another world. And so I try to do things like that. I guess, you know, it's definitely true that as the lawyer, you are taking on so much for your clients. 
and there's so much at stake all the time. You want things to be right. You know, I tend to be a perfectionist, so I, I don't even just want things to be right. I tend to want them to be perfect, which is an impossible standard in so many contexts. But, you know, yeah, that's sort of that's sort of how I, I try to do it. And I think another thing I would have to say, too, is that I do this job with, you know, one of my best friends, Reina Ramirez. You know, she's a, a brilliant criminal defense attorney. We have a lot of fun working together. You know, I think we tend to think of our law firm as something we've we've made and that we made it so we could be proud of it. And so there's always things that we are working on together. It feels like a project that I'm proud of that I've been working on, you know, for really more than five years now because we started when we were in law school. And, you know, I think, you know, we both tend to do this. If there's going to be a tough court day, the other person's there for the most part, if we can if we can work it out, because it's just sort of like home base, like I've got home next to me it's going to be a tough day or it's going to be stressful. Maybe the judge isn't going to like me or whatever, but you know, my, my friend's here and that's okay. You know, at the end of the day, we're going to leave here together. We're going to go back to our law firm, you know, where we're safe and sound. And how can people learn more about you and uh, partners in justice beyond this interview? Sure. Well, I have my personal Instagram, which is P-I-J underscore Christine. That's Partners in Justice, Christine. And then our law firm Instagram is Ramirez and Sunnerberg. We post lots of stuff there, case results. We posted about our fifth anniversary, which we were excited about this month. And we also post a lot of abolitionist content, criminal justice reform content, and things like that. Now, besides being an attorney, you oversee a support group for autistics in Massachusetts called Full Spectrum Agency. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that group and how they may be able to get more involved in it? I believe you've had Katie Oswald on this podcast. The wonderful Katie Oswald. The wonderful Katie Oswald, exactly. (laughs) So Katie has started the main organization, the Full Spectrum Agency, um, out in Michigan, And that's an organization that's run by autistic adults for autistic adults. It's a really great community. There's lots of events that people can attend virtually. And we have folks from all over the world that chime into our virtual events. You know, myself, I'm in Massachusetts, but that's how I I got involved with just sort of finding these events online and going to their meetup groups and becoming friends with Katie and, and other folks there. There's peer support groups, which is sort of a a monthly meeting we have where you can come in and share about problems you're having or even just listen to other people. Um, And we sort of offer support and ideas to one another. There's social hangouts, there's instructional meetings and training. So it's a really, really great group. You can Google Full Spectrum Agency, but you can also find the group on Meetup. And again, as someone out in Massachusetts, I was mostly getting jealous of all their their in-person events. You know, they would be going on nature walks and going to a zoo or, or different things like that. And so I started getting interested in how we could try to grow our community out here in Massachusetts. So we have a full spectrum agency, Massachusetts chapter now. You can find us on Meetup. We have lots of virtual events. They are open to everyone. So people can feel free to join us at our virtual things. We have a lot of discussion groups. We have one coming up about late in life diagnosis. And another unique event that we have that I'm pretty proud of is the special interest show and tell. We have had one already and we have another one coming up in March, March 4th. And basically that event is exactly what it sounds like. Lots of autistic people have special interests that we know, you know, up, down and sideways. We can talk to you about it for for six days if you want us to, Um, you know, and oftentimes we're not really given that chance to for, for whatever reason. I mean, there's not a lot of platforms to just do that in the regular world. So 
the idea behind this was that we could all get together, share about our special interests for, you know, everybody sort of gets maybe 10 minutes or so. We've had lots of different things. We had some jewelry making, we had bread making, we had people sharing about their favorite TV shows, tons of different things. I learned a lot and had a lot of fun. For people that want to attend events like that, you can find our meetup group and we're probably going to have special interest show and tells, you know, throughout the year because people have so many great things to share about, you know, and I guess I would just say, you know, if you're an autistic person listening and you're looking for community, especially if you're newly diagnosed and you're having a hard time with that new diagnosis, please find a group and go, whether it's our group or, or another one you can find, you know, lots of these groups, you can keep your camera off. You don't need to speak. You can just sit and listen. And personally, I'm of the belief that going and being among your people, it won't fix everything, but it will, for the most part, at least make you feel better in some way, even for just a little while. So I would encourage people to check out our group or other groups. I think it's a really good place to go, especially when you're first diagnosed. Now, before you leave, I'd like to talk a little bit about food. <laughs> and our Definitely. listeners probably yeah. might be wondering, what is, how are we going from the things we talked about to food? But uh, so I eat uh, vegan, probably about 80 to 90% of my diet. And one of the things that's difficult um, with this type of diet um, is sometimes finding some delicious vegan desserts because I have to have dessert. So from what I understand, um, you uh, bake some vegan desserts. So I'm wondering what's your go-to vegan dessert that you bake? Sure. Well, I'm a big dessert person myself. I would say <laughs> it's my most, my biggest food group. It's my most important food group. <laughs> so uh, when I started learning how to bake, I, I did, I started learning vegan because that's how I was eating at the time. I don't do that so much anymore, but I, I learned mostly to bake vegan. So for me, probably my favorite is a vegan marble chocolate chip banana bread which yeah it's as good the listeners can't see you but you're nodding because it sounds really good and it is it's it's absolutely delicious takes a little bit of time but totally worth the effort i can send you the link to that recipe and you can you know put it in the show notes i guess if, if people want to follow up and make their own their own banana bread i was gonna say i'm gonna have to come to massachusetts or something to hop in my car and, and i don't yeah, know That's... yeah right should i maybe start like advertising the banana bread in the group the Massachusetts chapter, maybe that would like bring people in. There's going to be bananas. I think that could be, <laughs> yes. I think it might right? bring in one or two additional people. For, Dessert for brings sure. me in, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they, I don't know who we have to contact, but desserts should definitely be a, a food a food group. Agreed, completely. They should work it into that pyramid or whatever, or just like maybe delete part of the pyramid if you have to. to keep <laughs> yes. Do whatever it takes, but work out the dessert problem. Eventually. Yeah. Create a word document to just delete and just create your own food pyramid for sure. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Christine, I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thanks so much for making time to have this conversation. Oh, thank you so much, Doug. This was great. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Christine for the conversation. To learn more about Christine and Partners for Justice, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides customized coaching for autistic teens and adults? All of our coaches are either autistic or autistic selected for their commitment to trauma-informed and neurodiversity-affirming strategies. They deeply understand burnout, sensory needs, executive functioning, and the importance of special interest. 
If you're interested in learning more about our coaching, please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.